Blood on the Tracks is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. John Lennon was a musical genius and one of the most beloved cultural figures of the 20th century. His songs inspired dreamers to imagine. His search for the truth gave power to the people. But some thought he dreamed too much. Others thought he was too powerful. So he was followed, he was threatened, he was declared a danger to the United States. And in 1980, he was assassinated. This is his story, told by his so-called friends. This is Special Agent Jim Steele with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, working case number 009-08-0491. Case subject is Lennon John Winston Ono. This information pertains to a period ending September 1978. Interview subject is Moon Keith John. Interview number 0-02-061-981. Spirit confessional, recall number 2, December 15, 1980. Oliver Reed once said that I showed them the way to insanity. I had the roadmap. In fact, I didn't need a map. It was all in my head. Some days it took us longer to get there than others, but that was all part of the trip. When I found myself in Los Angeles at the same time as John Lennon, I found another crazy old soul in search of insanity, self-destruction. Rebirth by root of oblivion. People think they know John Lennon, who he is, who he was, who he continues to be for millions of people. But they don't know at all. No one really knows. And not to toot my own horn, but I think I got to know him better than most. Because I was there at a time when he just tore it all down and tried to rebuild from scratch. He was no longer a Beatle. He was John Lennon. And what the bloody hell did that even mean? It meant that you had to be fearless and reckless. And you had to come to terms with the fact that the strange things you did would leave a lot of blood on the tracks. Life has always been a bit of a blur for me. I do remember that certain things happened. The crazier, the better, naturally. But the order that things happened, the chronology, good luck, mate. I can't remember. Did I drive that brand new Lincoln Continental into the pool at the Holiday Inn in Flint, Michigan before I chopped up the hotel room in Saskatoon with a hatchet? I do remember this one hotel room in Copenhagen, I believe it was. The one that came with a waterbed. Mr Moon, they said, all we have available is this suite with a waterbed. Will that be all right? Bloody hell. 
I had a few blokes try to carry the waterbed with me to the elevator so that we could send up a few floors and then explode it. But the damn thing exploded before we even got it out of the room. We must have accidentally punctured it. That was a two-ton waterbed. Right, so two tons of water were soaking into the floor in this hotel room and within minutes the floor blew out which is the ceiling of the room directly below us. And then the floor of that room blew out from all the water. Three rooms destroyed with one waterbed. And not to toot my own horn. Now, did that happen before or after I took the monkey tranquilizer and was out of commission for 24 hours? I don't know. Shit, was it a monkey tranquilizer? Maybe it was a rhino tranquilizer. All I know is that I had to be pushed around in a wheelchair for days. Couldn't feel my bloody legs. I did all these things out of boredom, by the way. The destruction on stage, with the who, was because we were pissed off. Pissed off that the audiences didn't have a more visceral reaction to what we were doing. The destruction off the stage was just because I needed something to fill the time. And like I said, I've never been good with time. However, I do remember that I was living in Los Angeles at the same time that John Lennon was out there. How could I forget that? I have the roadmap. John rented this beach house in Santa Monica. It used to belong to Peter Lawford. Lawford was the extra guy in Sinatra's Rat Pack. None of us knew what the hell he did besides drink Dean Martin's scotch. But Lawford was also married to Patricia Kennedy. And so... He had Jack Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy over to this beach house for parties. Rumour has it, JFK slept with Marilyn Monroe in that very house. Right there on the Pacific Coast Highway. So this was the drill. We'd rehearse songs at the beach house each afternoon. Songs for Pussycats. The album John was making with Harry Nielsen. Well, rise up. Get yourself Harry Nielsen's new album, Pussycats. Produced by John Lennon, Nielsen's latest. John had the record client in LA booked every afternoon at 5.30. So we'd have limos take us into town for the 5.30 sessions each day. Record till midnight or so. Then the limos would drive us around to the strip or wherever. You know, the whiskey, the rainbow, on the rocks. In search of insanity. We haunted LA nightlife so prolifically, we even got a nickname, the Hollywood Vampires. Not that we'd do that sort of thing every night. Those places were closed on Sundays. Then the limos would take us back to the beach house in Santa Monica, but not before we stopped at Turner's Liquor Store on Sunset and Larrabee, a 24-hour store where my credit was very good. Unlike the clubs, that place was open every day, thank the Lord. Some days it took us longer to get there. We'd wake up at some point the next day and start all over again. I would wake up with a different girl in bed with me every morning. I wasn't Peter Lawford, and the girls weren't Marilyn Monroe, but they do. This is when I was going by Baron Von Moon, my uniform of choice a German general's leather jacket, an aviator's scarf and field glasses. Never did wear much below, so when I turned around, my bare ass would poke out from the tails of the leather jacket. 
I could go naked at the beach house whenever I wanted to. Unlike the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, which is where I stayed when I first got into town in early 1974. The management of that place shut the electricity off in my room because they were getting too many noise complaints. Well, do you know what I did? I moved all my furniture out into the hallway, my armchair and stereo, plugged the stereo into an outlet in the hallway, played my music at full blast and sat in my armchair naked. You had to be fearless. And that got their attention pretty bloody quick. Okay, so I drew attention just about everywhere I went. I blew up drum kits on stage with The Who. I blew up toilets and hotel rooms. I knew more than a person should know about demolition. Self-destruction. And just imagine, there we are in Los Angeles. Me, John, Ari, Ringo, Van Dyke Parks, Alice Cooper, Mickey Dollins, whoever happened to jump in and join our wandering caravan of merry men. We demolished our minds. We demolished our bodies. Rebirth by root of oblivion. And I said, John, fuck all that Beatles rubbish. Let's focus on demolishing you, right? And reckless. Let's tear down whoever it was that you used to be and become someone completely different. I was Baron Von Moon, for example. So we started calling John Dr. Winston O'Boogie. What I didn't tell him was that becoming someone else wasn't going to be easy. But bloody hell, he must have known that. He was John Lennon. And all he had to do was take a good look at me and know that if we were heading in the same direction together, there were going to be some things that happened along the way that either you wouldn't be able to remember or you wouldn't want to. At one point, I imagined what it would be like if I was in the Beatles. I think all of us have at one time or another. It was 1965, and The Who were just getting started. Our debut long player, My Generation, wouldn't be out until the end of the year. I spotted The Beatles sitting together in this pub called The Scotch of St James in London. Bloody hell, The Beatles! Everyone loved the Beatles. I decided to be a bit cheeky, take the piss and all that. I walked over to their table and said, hello lads, do you mind if I join you? The lads were all smiles. By all means, Keith, pull up a chair. And I said, no, do you mind if I join you? You had to be fearless. That ruffled Ringo's feathers a bit, but he knew I was joking. Well, Partly joking, at least. All of us groups saw quite a bit of each other throughout the 60s, but it wasn't until 1974 in Los Angeles that I really got to know John. John didn't necessarily need someone to guide him down this path to get lost. He was quite adept at making a fool of himself on his own. But 
I being the resident goon, well, I took it upon myself to show them how to truly go berserk. I showed them the way. Now, should I have sacrificed the custom-built Holzer recording console A&M Studios to illustrate my point? Perhaps not. We were at A&M Studios to record some songs for the oldies but moldies record John was making with Phil Spector. I'd been invited to play drums. At the end of the session, Spectre and the audio engineers all went home, and it was just me, Ari and John hanging around. I said, John, best to live in the moment, carpe diem and all that rubbish. He's not busy being born, he's busy dying, etc. And then I unzipped my pants and pissed on the console. Insanity. Shit. I don't know if the damn thing ever worked again. Harry was laughing so hard he probably pissed his own pants. But John got angry at me. Moon, what the fuck have you done? You know, that sort of thing. I knew what I had done. I pissed all over a Holzer worth tens of thousands, easy. He just wasn't quite ready yet. He wasn't ready to go the distance to truly let go of your last care in the world and be so spontaneous that perhaps it scares you a little bit. You have to be fearless. John told the record company and the studio that someone spilled lager on it. But let me tell you, it wasn't lager. I mean, it may have once been lager, but it was definitely piss. John left a handwritten note for Spectre that blamed me and Ari for what happened. He was all worried because the studio was threatening to evict him over the damage. John panicked and told Spectre to tell the studio owner to bill Capitol Records for the damage. And then he wrote, I can't be expected to mind adult rock stars, nor can May. Besides, she works for me, not A&M. That was rich. Hello, Pot. This is the kettle calling. And who was minding John? Well, that would be May. May Pang, whom he referenced in that letter. He could barely recognise that May was on Rockstar babysitting duty with him, the dolt. May had accompanied John to Los Angeles, of course, from what I understand, on the orders of Yoko. May was their assistant, and Yoko was at a bit of an emotional impasse with John and thought that time and distance would heal all wounds. This was right after he embarrassed the hell out of her when he took Jerry Rubin's girlfriend into the bedroom at Jerry's flat and had his way with her, with Yoko there in the other room, as I understand it. And so, John went west to get all the impulses and urges and whatever else out of his system, just really live it up and party hard. And May was there not just as his assistant and babysitter, but also as a fling approved by his own wife. Not that John would even stay faithful to his wife-appointed lover. We had to break him in a bit. Get him to our level of insanity. I had the roadmap. So, the console pissing stunt out of the way, John started to cut loose a little more. That's when Dr. Winston O'Boogie started to peek out from behind John's eyes. Dr. O'Boogie drank Brandy Alexander's with Harry Nilsson and, and the like. And well, I'd drink anything once, twice to make sure I liked it or not, 
and then a third time to see if I needed a fourth or fifth to really settle upon an opinion. He must have been loaded on Brandy Alexander's when O'Boogie bugged right out of John's head one night at On The Rocks, which was a small lounge on top of the Roxy. Insanity. People knew he was in there. John Lennon, the ex-Beatle for Christ's sakes. People think they know John Lennon. First, because word had gotten around town that John was spending a lot of time in Los Angeles, recording and cavorting with the usual suspects. And as word spread that he was in town, fans would glean his whereabouts and they'd tell other fans. It wasn't a hard day's night. He was running for his life to escape a frenzied mob. But he was the most famous musician out of our entire group, so it made us all a bit high profile. So this crowd gathers in the parking lot outside the club and all these drunk fans are screaming up towards On The Rocks. Give us John Lennon, we want John. You know, just slurred demands from these frothing mouths yapping beneath bloodshot eyes. And John heard them all. Well, Dr. Winston O'Boogie heard them. And that's when he took over. And John kicked out the window of the club that looked out over the parking lot. The thing sailed straight toward the ground. It was very dramatic and to the point. Crash! There it was. I showed them the way. And then there's John, or Dr. O'Boogie, I presume? And he's screaming back at the fans, Here I am, you fuckers! John was so gone on Brandy Alexander's and who knows what else that he thought of jumping. Jumping straight out of the second story window and into the arms of these rabid fans. They weren't there to see a beetle. They were there to see John Lennon completely lose his shit and jump. Rebirth by root of oblivion. A few people grabbed John by the arms just as he started to make a run for it. Crazy old soul. They got him downstairs, outside, into the parking lot where the fans were still crackling and grabbing for him. John got overwhelmed and started pushing people around and throwing punches. And then the fans got pissed at him and started punching back. He was finally wrangled into the back of a big black car that was headed back to the beach house in Santa Monica. I'd like to think that it was my pissing stunt on the A&M console that gave them the inspiration to kick out the back window of the car as it sped away down Sunset Boulevard. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Now I've gone and done it again. I like to think everything I just told you happened in that very order because, well, because the stories just work well together that way. But fuck if I know, mate. I could have just told it all in reverse. I didn't need a map. All I know is that the more John hung around the rest of us crazy bastards, the crazier he became. And listen, if he was sent out west to, as it were, get it out of his system, well, I'm not sure at what point it was supposed to be out of his system. It just seemed to become more and more part of his system. That was all part of the trip. 
people who saw him do these things in public, whether he was drunk on the floor of a fancy restaurant with Phil Spector or disturbing the peace at Smother's Brother Show, it wasn't a beetle they were seeing. It was a spoiled rock star making a complete arse out of himself and in a way they had never seen before. Is that really John Lennon? He was no longer a beetle. These are the sorts of things they'd say. It was one thing to see someone like me running around in drag or in full Nazi regalia, which is true, you know. I wore that when I tried, very unsuccessfully, to make friends with my neighbour, Steve McQueen. But to see John acting outrageously was something completely different. What can I say? It was 1974. There were no more innocent poolside LSD trips with people like Peter Fonda. It was no longer good day sunshine. It was bloody hell, here comes the bleeding sun again. Just look at the music that came out of this time. There was the Oldies But Moldies album, which became rock and roll. There was Harry's Pussycats. There was my own solo album, Two Sides of the Moon, which John gave me an unreleased song to put on. But none of those were classic records. And what the bloody hell? Honestly, we were all lucky to make it out alive on the other side. Because John's lost weekend nearly killed him. It was the night of the Kotex episode. You've heard that story a million times, I suppose, so I don't really need to go into detail on it. Suffice to say, John went to the Troubadour with a Kotex sanitary napkin on his head and proceeded to make an incredible arse of himself while Ann Peebles tried to get through I Can't Stand the Rain on stage. John got himself kicked out of the club that night. Jesse Ed Davis was with him. Jesse Ed was one of the unsung guitar greats. Used to be Taj Mahal's right-hand man. And then he became a highly sought-after player for all these people in LA. B.B. King, Jackson Brown, Brian Ferry, George Harrison, the list goes on. Now, Jesse Ed worked real bloody hard to keep up with me. John, Harry, Ringo and the lot. I had the road map. John, May Pang, Jesse Ed and Jesse Ed's girlfriend, Patty, all went back to Harold Sider's place. That's one of John's lawyers. I don't even know why they ended up there, but just stick with me. As soon as they got there, Jesse Ed said they decided to Keith Moon the apartment. Can you believe it? And not to toot my own horn. I was rubbing off on John. I was. John smashed a hanging light with a skillet. He and Jesse Ed slashed a mattress and pulled the stuffing out. And reckless. And every time they break something, They pause for a drink or a snort of coke or something and then just get right back at it. Once there was nothing left to break, John went after Jesse Ed. John jumped him, put him into a wrestling hold and dragged him down on the floor which was littered with broken glass and mattress stuffing and cigarette ash. They rolled around on the floor, wrestling, laughing, just losing their bleeding minds. And in the chaos of the moment, a moment fueled by booze and drugs and the thrill of bad behaviour, John clocked Jesse Ed on the head with a marble ashtray. Just bam. Jesse Ed was out, mate. That was all part of the trip. 
Patty screamed bloody murder, just shrieking, you know, what have you done, he's dead. Just a blood curdling sound. It was such a racket that the neighbours panicked and called the police. So, just around the time that John revived Jesse Ed with a big splash of orange juice to the face of all things, the LAPD burst inside the place. Shotguns drawn. Based on the state of the apartment and the frantic call from the disturbed neighbour, the cops thought they had another Charles Manson on the rands. So they let the shotguns lead them into the place, fingers on the triggers, clearing each room as they made their way inside. John panicked and ran upstairs, which is a bad look when the demolished apartment you're in is being raided by armed police officers. People think they know John Lennon. May took Chase to coax him back downstairs, but a cop followed directly behind her. And as May is trying to reason with the man who is out of his mind, you know, a moon level of insanity, as I should know, and not to toot my own horn, the cop slowly walked into the room John was hiding in, his shotgun aimed directly at John's chest. John stopped rambling on to May, locked eyes with the cop, and slowly raised his hands in the air. Dead silence. The cop slowly lowered his shotgun as he realised that this wasn't the second coming of Charles Manson. This was John Lennon, mate. Holy shit, the cop said. John Lennon? Tell me, John, do you think the Beatles will ever get back together? September 6, 1978. Keith Moon paced around his London flat at 9 Curzon Square in London, the one owned by his friend Harry Nilsson. He debated calling his dealer. Did Keith want the cocaine because he was about to head out to a party and therefore needed some social lubricant? Did he want the cocaine because he was bored? Did he even want the cocaine at all? It was the eve of Buddy Holly's 42nd birthday, God rest his soul, and Keith's friend Paul McCartney was throwing a party at Peppermint Park, a cocktail bar over in the West End. Paul had recently purchased Buddy Holly's song publishing catalog, which probably burned John Lennon's ass a bit, since John was the Beatle who was heavily influenced by Buddy's singing style. Little Richard was more Paul's bag. The guest lists of music royalty at Paul's Buddy Holly party would pregame at Peppermint Park and then head over to catch a screening of the brand new biopic, The Buddy Holly Story, at a theater in Leicester Square later in the evening. There was a lot of social butterflying on the docket. So yes, yes, Keith did want the cocaine, especially since he wouldn't be drinking that night. He had been trying to go easy on the stuff, and so far, so good. Keith had been taking Heminivrin, a sedative prescribed by his doctor to help reduce Keith's constant cravings for booze. When the pills really took hold, they slowed Keith down to a snail's pace and made his memory even worse than it already was. But the Heminivrin was also helping Keith get healthy. It notably reduced his desire for alcohol 
and thus reduced his legendary alcohol consumption to a fraction of what it once was. But the Hemenovrin didn't quell Keith Moon's addictive personality. Quite the opposite. He regularly popped more Hemenovrin pills than he should have. And he figured, well, if he was drinking less, that it stood to reason that he should be allowed to continue drugging at a reasonable pace to balance things out. So on this night, he called up his dealer, scored an envelope of coke, took his beautiful girlfriend, Annette Walter Lacks, on his arm and hit the town. Keith mingled with Paul McCartney at Peppermint Park. Perhaps Paul gave Keith props for the Who's eighth and latest studio album, Who Are You?, which was currently going strong on the UK charts. And perhaps Keith reminisced about the time he spent in the drunken orbit of Paul's ex-songwriting partner, John Lennon, when John lived in Los Angeles. John had since returned to New York City and to his wife, Yoko Ono, and had dropped out of the public limelight altogether to raise his new son, Sean. Keith found that he wasn't particularly enjoying the public limelight himself on that evening, and so halfway through the Buddy Holly story, he and Annette bailed and went home. Annette didn't know that Keith was taking more hemenovrin than he should have been. She saw him routinely take what she called his usual glass of water and a bucket of pills when he finally went to sleep that night at 4 a.m. But he was awake a few hours later when he took more of the prescription medicine and fell asleep again. When Annette passed out and slept into mid-afternoon, she had no idea that when she would wake up, Keith Moon would be dead. In September of 1978, John Lennon was reverting back to his lost weekend ways while on holiday in Hawaii. It was there that he would have heard the news of Keith Moon's death, who overdosed on Hemenovrin in his flat on September 7th, the day after the Buddy Holly party at Peppermint Park. He was 32. John may have been a bit too out of his own head at the time to truly process what had happened. In Hawaii, John ran into Jesse Ed Davis, Taj Mahal's former guitarist, who had sat in on so many of the lost weekend sessions back in LA. Not to mention the extracurricular proto-WrestleMania sessions that took place at places like Harold Sider's apartment. John and Jesse Ed fell back into their old ways. Old ways that John had tried to purge from his system for 18 months in 1973 and 1974, but old habits die hard. John and Jesse Ed put their heads together to see what kind of junk they could scare up and what kind of trouble they could get into on the island before John had a return to New York and to parenthood. To the public, John Lennon had become another famous recluse, another Howard Hughes, another Greta Garbo, the real Greta Garbo, by the way, just happened to live in an apartment across Manhattan from John and Yoko. But John was no recluse. John was no Hughes or Garbo. Because the wild stories about John Lennon in the 1970s didn't just end when he left his fellow Hollywood vampires in Los Angeles and returned to New York to resume life as a family man. The stories followed him back. And so did some of the bad influences he grew close to, like Nelson Schmilson, a fellow pussycat, who just couldn't let John walk away from a path of self-destruction, only to leave a fellow pussycat hanging. The one in the same pussycat who, coincidentally, just happened to own the London flat that Keith Moon had died in. That particularly bad influence would be a staple in John's life on both coasts, and would even wreck his voice so bad that his vocal cords bled, very literally leaving nothing but blood on the tracks.
All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to Blood on the Tracks. If you like what you hear, be sure to find and follow Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this season two of Blood on the Tracks, we'll be releasing 10 episodes on the incredible life of John Lennon with a new episode every Thursday. You can also binge all 10 episodes of season one on the insane story of the notorious record producer Phil Spector. Right now, it's available wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Blood on the Tracks was written by Zeth Lundy and hosted and executive produced by me, Jake Brennan. Also executive produced by Brady Sadler. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. This episode was mixed by Colin Fleming. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. This episode featured Jack Lafferty's Keith Moon. Blood on the Tracks is produced by Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the Blood on the Tracks series page. If you want to chat about this show or hear more about the other shows we're making at Double Elvis, tap in on Instagram at Double Elvis, on Twitter at Double Elvis FM, and now on Twitch where we're streaming three days a week at twitch.tv slash Double Elvis Podcasts. And finally, be sure to check out Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I also host. Disgraceland is available only on the free Amazon Music app. To hear tons of insane stories about your favorite musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, go to amazon.com slash disgraceland, or if you have an Echo device, just say, Alexa, play the Disgraceland podcast. Rock along. Oh, dang it.